Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast, celebrating pro and college football history, one legend at a time. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Game Before the Money podcast. I'm Jackson Michael, author of the book, The Game Before the Money, and writer-director of the DVD, We Were the Oilers, The Love You Blue Era. Both are available at Amazon.com. And I also have a new audiobook, Red, White, and Columbia Blue, Chasing the Dream with the 1979 Houston Oilers. And that's available at Houston79.com. Today on the Game Before the Money podcast, we have linebacker Roger Zatkoff, who made multiple Pro Bowls in the 1950s. He's got some great stories about playing college football at Michigan, and we'll hear about his time with the Green Bay Packers in the 1950s, and then playing for the Detroit Lions on a dominating defense with a lot of Hall of Famers. Zatkoff played on the 1957 Detroit Lions that won the NFL championship game. And that might be one of the most robust lists of Hall of Famers on one team in NFL history. That team also held the largest playoff comeback win ever until Marv Levy's Buffalo Bills famous comeback win. So in this episode, Roger's going to share with us what it was like to play with Hall of Famers like Bobby Lane, what it was like to play for the Packers before Lambeau Field, and what it was like to play for the Michigan Wolverines before they even paved the tunnel. The tunnel leading onto the field was dirt in his day, and he's got a great story to go along with that. Roger Zakoff grew up in Hamtramck, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Sounds like a perfect setting for a future Michigan Wolverines star to be all about the maize and blue. But it turns out a relative serving in World War II led him to cheer for a conference rival. Well, actually... I was probably more of an Illinois fan because my uncle played for Illinois. He was drafted into the service and was at Great Lakes training. And then they transferred him from Great Lakes in Chicago down to Champaign, Illinois, and he played football for Ray Elliott. Ray Elliott won two Rose Bowls as Illinois' head coach. He was Ray Nitschke's college head coach, as well as J.C. Caroline's college coach. Nitschke, of course, in the Hall of Fame as a linebacker for the Packers, and J.C. Caroline on their great 1963 Bears championship team. Ray Elliott was also known for a motivational speech called The Proper State of Mind, which emphasized mental aspects of sports and reportedly influenced Lou Holtz as a head coach. Coach Ray Elliott at Illinois had success against Michigan with the help of Roger's uncle. My uncle Sam, when he played against Michigan at Ann Arbor, intercepted the football and then scored, and that beat Michigan that day. Roger Zakoff's football career started when he followed his friends who joined the Hamtramck high school team. He remembers for us his first day at practice. And I remember going down to the first practice, and when I got there, uh, the coach looked at us and gave out uniforms to a couple of kids that he knew, and then had no more uniforms left. And he looked at the last two or three of us and said, 
hey, come back in two or three days. I'll have some uniforms by then. And so what he did is he worked them so hard that some of the kids gave up, turned in their uniforms, and we came in a couple of days later and got a uniform. The coach didn't take it easy on Zach Coff either. Roger said his football coach noticed Roger was in a swimming class and told that instructor to transfer him out of that class and into his tougher gym class. Zakhoff's high school career led to several scholarship offers. College recruiting wasn't the well-oiled machine that it is today, however. Roger tells us about how he was recruited by the University of Michigan. Recruitment in those days meant that I received a phone call from an alumni guy who said, well, you're interested in playing football in Michigan? I said, yeah, I might very well be. So the guy said, well, why don't you go to Ann Arbor and go to where the tunnel is and we'll get your name and we'll get you a seat. So I go over by the tunnel and I stand there and they don't have my name on the list. And the kid that had the list said, hey, just hang around here for a few minutes. We'll see what we can do. So about, about 10 or 15 minutes later, he said, hey, go on in. I said, where should I sit? He says, anywhere you want, find an open seat. So I went in and sat down in the far south end zone and watched the game. After the game, of course, I went and hitchhiked back home. And that was my recruiting trip. So that was Roger Zakoff's introduction to Michigan football. He didn't want to attend college far from home, so Michigan was an easy choice for him. He enrolled as a freshman in 1949, right after Michigan went undefeated and won the national championship in 1948. He played for the legendary Michigan coach, Benny Oostermont. At that time, freshmen couldn't play varsity football, but Zakoff impressed Oostermont even as a freshman. Benny would sit up on top of the tackling dummies and watch practice and have a cigarette. <laughs> In fact, I'll never forget when I was a freshman, he sent one of the equipment managers over to where the freshmen were practicing and asked for a couple of guys to practice against the varsity team. So Cliff Keen at the time was the wrestling coach. He also was the freshman coach. Sent Ted Toper and myself over there to the varsity scrimmage, and they had us practicing tackling some of the running backs who had not gotten much work in the previous game because they didn't get the play. And then practice was over, and we went back to the freshman squad. And then the next day, he sent the athletic trainer over again and said, send me two more kids, but don't send Zatkoff and Toper. Cliff looked at us and sent us over anyway. And the next thing you know, we're halfway to run over to the varsity. And Benny stands up and says, no, you guys go back. I want somebody left to play on Saturday. I, I don't need you guys beating up on my varsity team. You know, all of a sudden, that was an indoctrination, if you will, as a freshman, that we could play with the guys who were sophomores, juniors, and seniors. Zakoff played immediately as a sophomore during the 1950 season. The 1950 Michigan Wolverines had a rocky start. They lost two of their first three games, but both losses were against ranked teams, including top-ranked Army. Benny Oosterbahn, Roger Zatkoff, and the rest of the Michigan Wolverines recovered from those early losses and played very well during conference play. Michigan went into their annual rivalry game against Ohio State with a chance at the Rose Bowl. The Wolverines needed to beat Ohio State 
and also needed Ray Elliott's Illinois team to lose to Northwestern. The 1950 Michigan-Ohio State game is the stuff of legend. And by stuff, I mean white stuff, as in snow. A blizzard hit Columbus, Ohio on game day. In fact, it was the biggest blizzard to hit Columbus in nearly 40 years. The game is often referred to as the snowball. The snow inhibited both teams. Roger, however, had a bigger issue than the weather that day. That was the snowball, as it's called today. I did not play in the game. I actually hurt my knee the week before against Northwestern and couldn't move the knee, and they drained it and taped it, but I couldn't play and I couldn't run on it. Roger didn't play in the 9-3 Michigan victory that's landed in the lore of both schools. In that game, Michigan blocked four punts, and one blocked punt was recovered in the end zone for a touchdown. Another blocked punt provided a safety. So those two plays, plus one extra point, provided all the scoring Michigan had that day. The Wolverines' offense didn't even manage a first down on that day, and the Buckeyes only managed three. Michigan's Chuck Ortman punted 24 times for a total of 723 yards. Ohio State's Heisman Trophy winner Vic Janowitz punted 21 times for Ohio State for over 685 yards. That's in one game. I figured that Ortman's 723 yards punting might be some sort of single-game punting record, but I surprisingly learned that it's not even close. The NCAA record for most punting yards in a single game is 1,318 yards by Texas Tech's Charlie Calhoun in 1939. Another crazy game happened on the same day as the Michigan-Ohio State snowball in 1950. Northwestern upset Illinois. So not only did Michigan win their game, the Dominoes fell their way and put the Wolverines in the Rose Bowl. The Wolverines flew out to California for the 1951 Rose Bowl on a DC-3 plane that Roger says was an adventure in itself. Roger started the game at linebacker for the Wolverines, but his knee injury flared up again. Zakoff spoke with Michigan assistant coach Jack Blott during the game. When I got out to the Rose Bowl, I practiced with the team, and they would drain my knee because it would fill up and then tape me, and then uh, I started the game and played the first half, but I got dinged pretty good. And I knew that I didn't have quite the speed and agility that I needed. I went to Jack Blott and said, look, I'll play. Don't think I don't want to play, but I think Ted Toper can do a better job than me because I can't seem to run quite as fast. So I didn't play the second half, and we won the game, and that made me feel much more justified about backing out for the second half. Michigan's defense halted an early Cal drive inside the Wolverine 20 with a fumble recovery. Michigan later scored two touchdowns in the last six minutes of the game and topped Cal 14-6 to to win the 1951 Rose Bowl. Roger told me the team took a train back home to Michigan and the players had an opportunity to see the Grand Canyon. Michigan slipped in the standings during Roger's junior and senior seasons, 
The team's record landed around the 500 mark both years. The Wolverines' home games were, of course, played at Michigan Stadium, now famously known as the Big House. Roger tells us the Wolverines had a little ritual as they raced out of the tunnel for each game, an action designed to frustrate opponents. It's now asphalt, but the tunnel used to be dirt. So if Michigan would go first, we would scuff our feet, and that would bring a lot of dust up in the air. And We knew that our opposition was behind us, and they were sucking in all that bad air. <laughs> now, they, of course, they, the other coaches complained, and of course they asphalt of that now. <laughs> Zakhoff put together an excellent career at Michigan. He won all Big Ten honors as a senior. He also won the school's Meyer Morton Award, given to the player who shows the most promise and development during the spring practice. Other winners of the Meyer Morton Award include former U.S. President Gerald Ford and current Michigan football coach Jim Harbaugh. Zakhoff was inducted into Michigan's prestigious Athletic Hall of Honor in 1985, and since 1991, Michigan has annually presented the Roger Zakhoff Award to the team's best linebacker. Zakhoff says a strong and steady work ethic paid off at Michigan and beyond. I would say, if nothing else, you just keep trying and keep, keep your nose to the grindstone and keep working, and you'll get an opportunity. And when you do, you better make the best of it. Roger made the best of his opportunity at Michigan and in the National Football League after the Green Bay Packers selected him in the fifth round of the 1953 NFL Draft. Roger tells us about how he first heard from the Packers and his first NFL contract. I got a phone call and the guy came and wanted to, wanted to take me to dinner. He was the team scout, if you will, or college scout, and he took me to dinner. <laughs> they presented me with a $6,000 contract. The Packers also selected future Hall of Fame center Jim Ringo from Syracuse in the 1953 NFL Draft. Zakoff and Ringo quickly became fast friends in training camp. Jim and I were roommates, and we were always concerned whether or not we would make the team. There was a $25 fine if you had the lights on after 11 o'clock. So Jim and I, when we went to bed at 11 o'clock, we would put the blanket over our head, and he and I would sit underneath the blanket with a flashlight, and we tried to decide how many guys that we thought would make the team and how many guys would get cut. <laughs> we were doing our own analysis every evening, always trying to save a spot for him and I. <laughs> well, it worked. You both made it, and, uh, and uh, you both had outstanding careers. Yeah, Jim was a great guy. In fact, he had me stay with him after practice because he needed someone to chase balls because he was the center, and they would do extra points and field goals. They would do all of those kind of things after practice. Not during practice. During practice, they would run plays and you just you go full out. Every once in a while, someone would say, well, go 75%. Well, there's no such thing as a 75%. Not if you're playing the game. We talked about Michigan Stadium earlier. And if you're like me, when you think of Michigan football, it doesn't take long for images of the big house to pop into your mind. It's probably similar with the Green Bay Packers and Lambeau Field. Well, Roger played a few seasons before Lambeau Field was built. Let's just say the previous stadium probably didn't have the same aura. 
We played in a high school stadium. And I got a picture here right in my room of it. Roger's not exaggerating. The Packers played home games at Green Bay's East High School, the same high school from which Curly Lambeau graduated. They played in what was called City Stadium from the mid-20s through the mid-50s. And for a long time, the Packers actually dressed for games in the East High School locker rooms. The NFL wanted Green Bay to build a new stadium and the voters approved the construction. The Packers moved into the new City Stadium in 1957, which was later renamed Lambeau Field in 1965. The old City Stadium that Roger played in apparently housed one feature that offered a bruising advantage to the defense. Roger explains. Had a uh, wooden 2x8 about five yards off of the field because they had a they had a you know a dirt dirt running track around the field and they had a two by eight all the way around the field so the goal was when you're playing ball there if you could catch a running back running down the sidelines and if you hit him and drove him off the edge you could drive him into the two by eight which is which is surrounding the field <laughs> get a little extra hit in there yes <laughs> you know if you, if you had a good halfback or a good the top player from the team you didn't want to hurt him so he couldn't play but you just didn't want him to play that day how's that roger told me that he remembers the rams tank younger and the colts alan amici as two of the best running backs he faced you might remember that roger signed a contract for six thousand dollars I typed that into the Bureau of Labor Statistics inflation calculator, and that's the equivalent of earning about $57,000 in 2020. He compared the money to what his father made at a blue-collar job, and Roger also talked about what he did in the offseason to make some extra money and to stay in shape before the NFL had off-season training programs. Yeah, that was not bad because my dad would work as a tire builder, at U.S. Rubber, and he ended up making about 4000 a year. So I got six in six months. And then on top of that, I ended up teaching school for about five months and running a jackhammer for another month, six weeks. So I made about nine grand, where he made about four. And and did that jackhammer, did, did that help you get in condition for the season, or? Yeah, that was my... That was my team workout. <laughs> Actually, it was two things that helped. Uh, I was a teacher, as a substitute teacher in the Detroit system, and being a college football player and a professional football player, as a substitute teacher, you know, the kids in high school always wanted to test you. So they would want to run against you, and we would have races. I can remember after school one day, having a race with some kids that were pretty fast. And we had this one stretch of hallway that was like a T. So we posted some kids at that section where the leg went off and said, don't let anybody come in the hallway because we're going to run over them. And so we went down the other end and we raced straight down the hall. And I played baseball and with the kids outside between that and running the jackhammer that was my lifting 
Although the money was nowhere near what today's players make, and the Packers' home stadium wouldn't even compare to today's practice facilities, one thing was like it was today, and that's the Packers-Bears rivalry. The matchup provided the biggest games of the year, and the fans were fired up about it. Literally fired up about it, as it turns out. You knew just going into Chicago and staying at the hotel was difficult because they sometimes set the alarm off and get everybody out of the hotel. <laughs> yeah, someone pulled off the fire alarm and we were out in the middle of the night. I had to go back in and go to bed. Roger also noted that Ohio State fans pulled the same trick one year while he was at Michigan. The Green Bay Packers languished low in the standings during Rodgers' tenure, but Zakoff was an outstanding linebacker. He made the Pro Bowl three out of his four years with the team. He played with the Packers through 1956, which brings us to something not too many people think about in terms of playing professional football and raising a family at the same time. Roger's wife pointed out that playing for the Packers in 1957 also meant their daughter needed to start the school year in Green Bay and then finish the school year in Detroit. Going back and forth between two schools is a big upheaval for a youngster. A lot of us don't think about the logistics of playing pro football while raising a family, but this was a real decision to make. Roger's wife didn't want to put their daughter through changing schools, and wanted to keep their daughter in the Detroit school system for the entire year rather than making her adjust to two different schools. In the end, Roger needed to choose between going to Green Bay by himself for the season, retire from pro football, or hope that he could get traded to the Detroit Lions. Sonny Gandy was the right linebacker the previous year with Detroit from Ohio State, and he hurt his knee, and they were looking to replace him. And that was the position that I played. And I thought, well, that was a perfect fit. So I asked them to trade me. And they attempted to trade me to Detroit. A trade with Detroit didn't work out at first. The Packers traded Roger to Cleveland instead. Zakoff held out for several weeks, waiting for Detroit coach Buddy Parker to quit and hoped things would change. Parker and the Lions did part ways. Parker moved on to coach the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the Lions hired George Wilson. As the season neared, however, Roger remained on the Browns roster. And then I went hat in hand down to see Paul Brown, and he said to me he wasn't going to offer me the same contract that he did three months before because I refused to come to camp and I missed five weeks of camp. So he asked me what I thought he should pay me. And I said, I thought you'd be the best judge of that coach. And he thought for a bit and docked me to $100 a week because I missed five weeks of training camp. So instead of a 12-5 contract, I got a $12,000 contract. That was on a Thursday. Roger played special teams for the Browns that Saturday in a preseason game. The Browns' second preseason game of the year. In those days, NFL teams played six preseason games. The Browns' next two preseason games were on the West Coast. We went up to San Francisco, and I ended up playing that game, and I was dragging because I was really out of shape to play the whole game within seven days. So then we went down to L.A., 
and then I was called into a room with Pete Russell and Paul Brown, and Pete was the general manager for the Los Angeles Rams at the time, and he had just acquired me from Paul Brown for Rudy Bukic, the quarterback, and all he needed was me to go with him to a training camp with the Los Angeles Rams. So there's Roger in a room with Paul Brown and future NFL commissioner Pete Rozelle, who then worked for the Rams. Roger refused to agree to the trade. He told Rozelle about wanting to keep their daughter in one school. If that wasn't going to work staying in Green Bay, how could it possibly work out playing in Los Angeles over 2,000 miles away? Roselle suggested that Roger's wife could fly out to L.A. I said she's eight and a half months pregnant and I got three kids. <laughs> and I'm not going to call her. Enter NFL Commissioner Burt Bell. Nobody knew it at the time, but it would be a bit of NFL history involving the current NFL commissioner and the future NFL commissioner. I had Paul Brown call Burt Bell. I talked to Burt Bell and went through the scenario with him. And he told me to hang with Paul for about 24 hours. And he reversed the trade with L.A. and then traded me to Detroit. Zakhoff appreciated the huge favor done by Burt Bell on his behalf. And you can learn more about Burt Bell with memories from his son Upton Bell on the Burt Bell the Great Commissioner episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. And that's episode four of the Game Before the Money podcast. We're also going to have Upton share more stories about his father in a three-part series about three games that changed the NFL. And those are upcoming in the Game Before the Money podcast. So if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Roger landed on a Detroit Lions team that won back-to-back championships in 1952 and 1953. The quarterback who led them to those titles Bobby Lane was still on the roster. So was future Hall of Fame offensive lineman Lou Kriegmer. And listen to the defense that Roger joined. In the starting lineup, Yale Larry, Hall of Fame, Joe Schmidt, Hall of Fame, Jack Christensen, Hall of Fame. And Roger tells us about playing with Bobby Lane and that defense. Yeah, that was a great team. That was a great defensive team. We had... Darius McCord on one side, and then we had Ray Cross and tackle. Joe was like an extra coach, and Bobby was certainly an extra coach for the Lions because he knew how to handle people. He knew which ones to put his arm around and whisper in his ear or which ones to dress down in front of everybody else. He was a team leader. Darius McCord had an excellent 13-year career with the Lions. Ray Krause had a solid decade-long NFL career, and won three NFL championships. That 1957 Lions defense featured incredible talent and outstanding leadership. Zakoff said that playing with Joe Schmidt was like having a coach on the field. In one of the games, when Ray Cross was having some foot problems, Joe came up to me and said, hey, I want you to cheat a half-man to your left. I said, okay, why? He said, because Ray's in trouble. Oh, okay. So we were making on-the-field adjustments. Good players on that team in 1957. The Lions battled for the top of the NFL West Division late in the 1957 NFL season. 
They beat the Cleveland Browns in the season's second to last week and improved their record to 7-4. That tied them with the Baltimore Colts and the San Francisco 49ers for first place in the NFL's West Division. That was all great news. The bad news, however, was a quarterback Bobby Lane broke his ankle in the win over the Browns and was lost for the season. Tobin Rote started the season finale for the Lions at quarterback and led the Lions to a victory over the Chicago Bears. The Lions finished the 1957 season at 8-4, tied with the San Francisco 49ers for first place in the NFL West Division. That set up a divisional playoff game at San Francisco's Kizar Stadium. In the first quarter, Tittle hit R.C. Owens for a 34-yard touchdown pass and Hugh McElhenney for a 47-yard score. At halftime, the 49ers held a 24-7 lead. It's been all San Francisco in the first half, and fans are sensing victory as the home team leads 24-7 at halftime. The Lions headed into the locker room for halftime and could hear the 49ers talking in their locker room. Roger takes us inside. Oh yeah, there was a very thin two-by-four wall with a open vent from one locker room into the next locker room, and they were hooting and hollering and talking about buying a wife a fur coat, another guy's buying his wife a car, another guy's getting his ticket orders for the championship game. And we were sitting there because we were behind by so much by that time. They went hooting and hollering and went back on the field. And then I think Bobby and Lou and Joe stood up and said, hey, let's just not embarrass ourselves the second half. And the first play from scrimmage, McElhaney took the ball, ran to his right, circled back to his left, and finally we brought him down, and they kicked the field goal. After their third quarter field goal, the 49ers led 27-7. The 49ers fumbled on their next possession, however, and the Lions recovered on San Francisco's 28-yard line. Detroit converted the turnover into a one-yard touchdown run by running back Tom the Bomb Tracy. Detroit now trailed 27-14. The Lions faced a fourth down on their own 20-yard line on their next possession. 
Detroit took a huge gamble and went for the first down. Quarterback Tobin Rowe tossed a 14-yard pass to former Heisman Trophy winner Howard Cassidy, and the Lions picked up the first down. Shortly thereafter, Rowe gave Tracy the ball on an off-tackle play. Tracy broke free and scampered 59 yards into the end zone and pulled the Lions to within six points at 27 to 21. A stunning turn of events in the third quarter of a game that seemed all but over at halftime. Tom Tracy has scored two touchdowns for Detroit. The second touchdown was an exciting 59-yard dash, first toward the sideline and then down the middle of the field. San Francisco's lead has dwindled to a mere six points. On the last play of the third quarter, Tobin Rote hit Steve Junker on a post pattern, and that put the Lions on the San Francisco 15-yard line. Three plays later, the Lions took the lead for good. Detroit later added a field goal and won that game 31-27. Rodgers' interception near the end of the game helped ice the victory. The 20-point come-from-behind win stood as the largest comeback in NFL playoff history for 35 years. You can probably guess the team that broke that record it was the Buffalo Bills in their famous 35-3 comeback win over the Houston Oilers. That was during the playoffs for the 1992 season. And you can hear more about that Bills game from their head coach Marv Levy in the Marv Levy episode of the Game Before the Money podcast. The Lions moved on to the 1957 NFL Championship game against the Cleveland Browns after their historic comeback. The Browns and Lions met at Detroit's Briggs Stadium, which was later named Tiger Stadium. Rodgers started the game at linebacker for the Lions, and the day turned out to be the Lions' day. Detroit scored two touchdowns in every quarter and thrashed the Browns 59-14. The Lions' 59 points still stands as the second-highest point total in an NFL League championship game as of the completion of Super Bowl 54. A lot of you probably know the record is 73 points scored by the Chicago Bears in the 1940 NFL championship game. And I bring that up because the Lions head coach in 1957, George Wilson, played for the Bears in that 1940 game. Zakoff says what he remembers most about the 57 championship game is that the Lions' offense had such a superb day that the defense wasn't on the field as much. When the Lions' defense was on the field, they forced seven turnovers. Rodgers suited up again for the Lions in 1958. It turned out to be his final NFL season. I got hurt as a sophomore at Michigan prior to that Ohio State game. If you recall, I mentioned I didn't play that game in the snowball. That knee acted up on me again in 1958 as I was running down the field Thanksgiving Day and I couldn't put any more pressure on it. 
So I went to see the doctor in Ann Arbor who did the original operation and asked him if he could fix it. And he said, yes, he could. I said, good, I'll do the operation and I can still play. He said, there's one question I want to ask you. I said, what's that? He said, the next time you hurt it, do you want me to fuse it bent or straight? I said, is that bad? He said, yes. I said, I think I'll quit. <laughs> Roger left football and started Zach Koff's seals and packings in 1959. He took the company from his basement and built it into the largest privately owned seal distributor in North America. Still a highly successful company today, you can visit ZatKoff.com to learn more. That's Z-A-T-K-O-F-F dot com. Zatkoff truly grew up to be a hometown hero. From Hamtramck High School to playing for the Michigan Wolverines under the legendary Benny Oosterman, to playing a key part in the Detroit Lions 1957 NFL Championship. Zakhoff also got to experience a golden age of pro football as a starting linebacker and a pro bowler in the 1950s. A special thanks to Roger Zakhoff for interviewing for this podcast. And thanks to you for listening to the Game Before the Money podcast. Please subscribe to the Game Before the Money podcast on your favorite podcast app and visit thegamebeforethemoney.com. A transcription of this episode will be made available on thegamebeforethemoney.com in the podcast notes section. Transcriptions are powered by our transcription partner, Sonics. That's S-O-N-I-X. Visit sonics.ai to learn more. Fictional news correspondent segments were created and produced by Eleven Productions.